Hello and welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you. Uh, while I'm actually out and away on my honeymoon right now, I have pre-recorded this podcast for your listening and viewing pleasure. If you're watching on YouTube, you are seeing video. Otherwise, this comes to you on Stitcher, iTunes, and Google Play uh, with uh, audio. So, um, this week... I have a combination of notes that I've taken that I'm going to read from and some ad-libbing that I'm sure I will do while I'm going through the course of this. So I didn't sit down like I sometimes do and script out the entire thing. I wanted to actually leave myself a little bit of room for some ad-libs so I didn't put myself behind a desk and, and set myself up that way. I am sitting here like this and sometimes you'll see me reading from my script over here uh, and sometimes you'll see me addressing the camera directly. And hopefully when I do so, I won't sound too awkward. Uh, it was suggested to me uh, by a viewer not too long ago uh, to look into and comment on a documentary. And I get you know requests and suggestions and ideas all the time, and I appreciate a ton of them. And of course, with the number that I get, I cannot act on all of them. I get, you wouldn't believe some of the messages I get, and you should do a podcast on this, and you should do a podcast on that. And I agree with all of them, but if I did, then I'd have to be putting out podcasts every couple days, and I'm not really set up for that. So, this one, though, caught my eye, and it has to do with a documentary called The Red Pill. And uh, this was made by a woman named Casey J. in 2016, uh, using crowdsourced uh, funding, and it looks at the men's rights movement, and uh, the people both men and women, who identify themselves as men's rights activists, or MRAs. This will be a term we're going to be using a lot. And so let's go ahead and take a look at what that term means first. According to the Urban Dictionary, an online dictionary, the top definition of this term, MRA, or men's rights activist, states, quote, civil society associations concerned with combating accepted discrimination against men in contemporary society especially in the areas of military service, family law, popular culture, and other areas when double standards are applied, often targets of hate speech by radical feminists. And so that's one example or, or uh, statement about men's rights activists. And it says, according to the Urban Dictionary, that's the top one. However, I also looked, there's, there's other descriptions of this. And the most upvoted one on the Urban Dictionary also says this. Quote, someone who believes that the honorable cause of providing rights for women has exceeded justice in several areas, with some laws now favoring women instead of being neutral. They are often accused by women of being misogynistic. MRAs do not approve of how women get lighter sentences in court than men. Ultra-feminists hate any MRA and will do anything to destroy his credibility. And those last two bits there were examples of its use, I guess, in a sentence. All right, so obviously this is a contentious and passionate subject and one that has really no shortage of black and white thinking. And if you're, any, if you're familiar with my channel at all, you've known that I've discussed black and white thinking or absolutist thinking or extremist thinking uh, quite a bit because it is, it is uh, you know, if you look at a spectrum of, of, of any idea, you have the extremes, black, white. And when you go to those extremes, you are missing out on the, the nuances and the gradation of ideas and rationality that can exist in any topic. There are very, very few things that are really black and white. And feminism and gender rights and social equality and inequality, these are not black and white issues on any metric. All right. Uh, now, it may be a mistake for me to stick my foot into this particular subject, but I was asked, and, you know, I was in a cult for 27 years, so, you know, maybe judgment isn't my strong point. Uh, actually, though, to be totally honest, this is a very serious subject, and, uh, and it's worth a critical discussion or two. And, I mean, researching this, 
I read a lot of articles, I watched a lot of videos from people who are a lot smarter and a lot better educated than I am, and they made good and bad arguments for and against the men's rights movement. So let's go ahead then with this video and, and podcast, and let's go ahead and start out with a statement of what I feel, you know, where I stand on the overall idea of feminism as I understand it. Uh, I will say this. I have looked into the various waves, quote-unquote, of feminism, as they have been called historically, and I fully agree that women have historically had it worse than men in many ways. Not allowing women an equal right to vote was pretty ludicrous, as are most of the stereotypical roles that women have been forced to play out. As far as I'm concerned, there should be no law or rule or guideline that stops a woman from doing anything she wants to do so long as it is not destructive to herself or others and doesn't impinge on or violate the human rights of anyone else. That includes not just the laws on the books, but I'm also referring to cultural norms and values and what we consider to be rules of quote-unquote morality. I see very few places where someone's gender needs to play a significant role in determining their rights or freedoms. There are certain roles women play that men simply can't, such as giving birth and child-rearing. No matter how hard we might try, men are not going to give birth or breastfeed. They also won't have to experience some of the physical suffering women's biology puts them through, such as having periods or pregnancy or having their backs go out of whack if their breasts are too large. And I'm not even joking. What's more, I'm a man. So no matter how hard I try, I will never be able to talk about what it's like to live life as a woman. There are certain aspects of it that I just will never understand because I haven't and I can't experience it. That being said, I will point out the opposite is just as true. Some women sometimes get so wrapped up in their own specific problems and issues that I have gotten, as a man, the distinct idea that they think men's issues are gender neutral and there are no real problems for men compared to what women have to experience. I'd say that would be just as stupid a statement as me saying, what are women always crying about? They have it easy. There are distinct physiological, mental, and emotional differences between men and women, and no amount of talking, thinking, or writing is ever going to change that or make those differences go away. We have to learn to live with each other in order to allow the species of Homo sapiens to continue. And so we come to the Red Pill documentary and the MRAs. I'll use a guy named Paul Elam, who is basically one of the founders of the men's rights activist movement, as the focus of what MRAs represent, although I'm well aware that there's a lot more to this than just what Paul Elam has written or said. As far as I can tell, Elam represents most of the more rational positions the MRAs take, Although, you'll, you're going to get plenty of criticism about Elam, so just hold on if you're thinking I'm going to start endorsing what he's saying. I have reasons and rationale for everything I'm going to say in this podcast, and I will explain myself. So, no flying off the handle with the comments yet that I'm a rape apologist or anything like that, because I can assure you I am not. Um, now, I was interested in what he had to say uh, after seeing this documentary and, that's, and researching for this podcast. I didn't just go watch the documentary and then sit and do this. I've spent the last two days, better part of the last two days, immersed in this. And, and I only, all I really see from that last two days is that there's, it's a very deep well and there is all kinds of stuff to look into. But I feel I have enough to be able to talk about this documentary and some of the issues. Now, given my background, with Scientology as an ex-member of a destructive cult, I can see that Elam treats feminism as a kind of cult. And in some ways he's right, but only in some very limited and specific ways. As with any extremist, and make no mistake, Elam is an extremist. He takes the bits of truth he preaches and he spins it out to exaggerated and ridiculous proportions. All right, now before we get any further into the Red Pill documentary itself, there were a couple points about critical thinking that I wanted to talk about. 
uh, because I think these points are very, very applicable to the entire subject of men versus women and the MRAs and the, and the, the dialogue and vitriol that flies around about this. So let me just say a few things in terms of some logical fallacies that I see very commonly connected with a lot of the arguments both for and against MRAs and for and against feminism. Freedom of speech means freedom for everyone to speak. No one has a right to a venue, as that is a private matter of those offering the platform or the venue. But if you're trying to silence your opposition, it would be a very good idea to make absolutely sure you are justified in doing so. Controversial topics create polarization, and the emotions generated by that often become extreme, which then skews one's view of the topic. If you're not willing for an opposing view to even be heard, my opinion is that you have a very weak, fragile argument that could probably easily be taken apart or challenged, and you're afraid of what the outcome will be in a debate or a forum. We should be better at the exchange of ideas in public forums rather than trying to shut them down. What is the difference between a women's group, a men's group, the KKK, or the government shutting down a public platform of idea engagement. The only difference is the viewpoint of those involved. The action of censorship is the same no matter who's doing it. Shouting down opposition, making noise to interfere with an event, pulling fire alarms, rioting, and otherwise sabotaging these events are the actions of a six-year-old, akin to putting your hands over your ears and saying, nah, 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 it's pretty childish and frankly, it's uncivilized. Another logical fallacy that occurs frequently in discussion of controversial groups or issues is to make the most extreme examples or lunatic fringe of a movement represent the entire movement. Everyone has done this, including me. In any large group of individuals united around a common purpose or cause, you're gonna get many differing views, opinions, and interpretations of what that common purpose actually means. When you then look at those who oppose that group, you find not only the same spectrum of differing understanding and ideas, but also a vested interest in twisting or distorting anything sensible in that group because the whole effort of the opposing group is to demean, discredit, or destroy that group. The opportunities for irrational thought increase exponentially as a result, because those distortions or outright lies end up becoming a straw man for the opposing group. Its members end up misrepresenting the original group to be this straw man that they've created, and then they can ignore anything sensible or reasonable about the original group. Again, we all do this or contribute to it, uh, but it seems few of us take the time to recognize when we're doing so because of our own biases and because often we've only been given the straw man rather than the real arguments. And I, like I said, I have been guilty of this in uh, some of my political rhetoric, and even, I will say, um, in some of my rhetoric maybe about independent Scientologists, you know, I'm willing to concede that I uh, might have grouped all of them into a bag that they don't necessarily deserve to be grouped into. Another aspect of this is when all men or women are individually made responsible for all the wrongdoings, errors, and crimes of their peers and forefathers. I, as a male, do not represent all males. Any individual woman listening or watching this podcast does not typify all women. We have to group men and women together into classes for the purpose of statistics and overall tendencies when it comes to sociological or psychological or physical studies. But the truth is that every one of us are individuals who have our own unique experiences, upbringing, education, and our own unique way of looking at the world. When this is ignored, not only are potential allies cast aside because they have a penis, but enemies are actually created against feminism because individuals are wrongly called out ostracized or even persecuted for nothing they themselves ever did. 
In researching this podcast, I found plenty of examples of men who support the ideas of equal rights, who want to resist being misogynistic or sexist, and who want to do their part to combat abuse and violence against women. Yet it's the women who push them away because all men are the enemy, quote-unquote, or similar kinds of thinking. And of course, I'm not saying all women do that or all feminists do that, because that would be another logical fallacy, which I'm sitting here preaching against. So uh, I chose my words carefully with this, and I hope this is coming across the way that I intended it to. Then there is the zero-sum fallacy, S-U-M, the zero-sum fallacy, which says that if you get something, others must be denied that thing that you're getting. It's been used in economics or talking about production, but it also applies when people of either gender assert, I don't have this right, you have to lose this right in order for me to have it. Okay, that's just not... <laughs> it's, it's kind of as though there's this big bag of rights or a bag of discriminations and there aren't enough to go around. So if you as a woman are being discriminated against because of X, then there's no way a man could ever be discriminated against for the exact same thing. That's, that's fallacious thinking. Yet it's fairly easy to see, if you aren't so emotionally invested in being a victim, that there are plenty of rights to go around, and this is for men and for women, and plenty of reasons to also discriminate against one another. The more rational voices in the feminist movement see this fallacy amongst their own members and amongst males, and have tried to make the case that when equal rights exist for both genders, then everyone benefits. As Catherine Meyer wrote in The Guardian in an April 2017 article, quote, He represents and magnifies a strain of confused thought that misunderstands equality as a zero-sum game. If women get a slice of the cake, there will be less for men. All the evidence shows the opposite is true. More gender equality means more cake, end quote. All right, so all that being said, let's take a look at this Red Pill documentary. Now, why is it called the Red Pill? Well, it's from the movie The Matrix, of course. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill, the story ends, you wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. The blue pill is the paradigm that most people live by, Elam tells the documentary maker, that men have all the power, that they've always had all the power, that domestic violence is a problem that's only committed by men against women, that sexual assaults are only committed by men against women, and that women don't make the same money for the same work as men. Feminists say we need to stop violence against women instead of just stopping violence. That is feminist training, end quote. That's a quote from Elam. All right. So let's take a look at, uh, briefly here, uh, personal responsibility versus institutional or systemic problems, because there, this is, again, a point of absolutist thinking, where people will go to extremes of talking about personal responsibility and individualism being all that you need or all that the problem uh, is contained in. And then there's another extreme, which is it's all systemic. It's, it's the patriarchy. It exists. There's nothing you can, you know, we need to fight back against it. Uh, for, you know, centuries, women haven't been able to do anything about it. Now we can. Uh, you know, so it's sort of like this either or sort of thing, when again, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. There was a BuzzFeed article from February 5th, 2015 by Adam Serwer and Katie Baker, where, where he said, they say, quote, Elam's takes on gender are often attractive to men dealing with the painful aftermath of divorces, custody battles, and rejection. He preaches the gospel that men's failures and disappointments are not due to personal shortcomings or lapsed responsibility, but rather institutionalized feminism and a family court system rigged against dutiful fathers, as well as a world gripped by misandry or the hatred of men." End quote. Now, I will simply say that I see that in Elam's work, um, and I think he's dead wrong about that. I think that if we deny personal responsibility and one's own actions in any scenario or situation and blame it all just on a system, 
uh, then you are sort of denying your own power and you're also denying your own ability to do something about the problems of your life. Uh, but that's not to say that there are not massive systemic issues that sometimes we are not able to fight against. And this goes again for men and for women. Women refer to it as the patriarchy. Men refer to it in the men's rights movement as the feminist matriarchy or the you know, systemic problem with uh, feminism. And I think both of them have points that are correct, and I think both of them have points that are incorrect. And it's the absolutist thinking that I think that makes the biggest problem with that. In viewing the red pill, a number of points were brought up by the documentarian that got her, she, she claimed when she started making the film that she was a feminist and she had very strong feminist views, had made other documentaries from a feminist angle, and then decided to tackle the men's rights movement or the MRAs. And she was surprised, she said, to learn that there were valid and rational points they were trying to make and that it seemed that the feminists were not paying attention to those points, were ignoring them, maybe sometimes on purpose. Maybe because there, was other, there were other vested interests or intentions behind certain feminists and their ideas. And maybe because, to be totally blunt and open, because uh, maybe some feminists are more interested in accumulating power for themselves or for their side, so to speak, than they are in pushing a true equal rights agenda or platform that would provide an equal footing for both males and females. All right, well, I looked over all of this and I spent the bulk of the last couple days looking into a lot of the subjects and facts and figures that were, that were presented in the Red Pill documentary. I think this is very necessary when you watch documentary to follow up and see whether the information that was presented is factual, whether it was provided in context, and whether there are opposing views or arguments which were not taken up. And I found, um, you know, some examples of all of the above from this documentary. However, let's go ahead and go over first some of what I looked at as what I thought might be some of the more valid and rational points that were brought up for discussion. Uh, I think any of these points that I'm about to go over should be valid discussion points. And if by the mere act of bringing them up, you as a viewer feel inclined or uh, urged to start calling me names, uh, well, I'd say that you should probably take a look at your own intentions on that because my intentions are merely to open a, a discussion and to talk about things that might, you know, might need to be talked about. All right. The first one that's brought up and something I did not actually know anything about until I watched the documentary and then did research on it afterwards was male suicide rates. Uh, now, the claim made by the MRAs is one of the indications that men experience more stress, anxiety, and grief than women. Um, and that has to do with gender differences in suicide rates. There's even a Wikipedia page just on this topic, which shows not suicide, but gender differences in suicide, which shows statistically that there is a paradox that women more often have suicidal thoughts, but men die by suicide more frequently. In the Western world, males die by suicide three to four times more often than females, yet women try two to four times more frequently to kill themselves. It's a little hard to nail down how often people are having suicidal thoughts, though, but the hard numbers of male versus female suicides are clear and easy to find from the World Health Organization and numerous other university and hospital studies. The bottom line is that men die by suicide 3.5 times more often than women, but women attempt suicide two times more often than men. That's the paradox. What I could not find in the time I had to research this or in the information available to me, since I can't get to most academic papers on this stuff because I'm not an academic, what I found is that, what I couldn't find rather, is what factor age played in male suicide. And if anybody has any research on this they can link me to or comments they'd like to make on it, go right ahead in the comment section to this podcast. I'm referring here to the idea that older men may be killing themselves because their lifelong spouses die or they have reached a point where their quality of life has been impacted to the point they no longer want to carry on. 
Now certainly there is a percentage of such suicides, but what it is I can't say. I'll quote here from factors cited on the Wikipedia page. These come from studies done by the Australia Institute for Suicide Research, the Scandinavian Journal of Psychology, the Journal of Men's Health, and the European Archives of Psychiatry and Neuroscience. Quote, A common explanation relies on the social constructions of hegemonic masculinity and femininity. According to literature on gender and suicide, male suicide rates are explained in terms of traditional gender roles. Male gender roles tend to emphasize greater levels of strength, independence, risk-taking behavior, economic status, and individualism. Reinforcement of this gender role often prevents males from seeking help for suicidal feelings and depression. Numerous other factors have been put forward as the cause of the gender paradox. Part of the gap may be explained by heightened levels of stress that result from traditional gender roles. For example, the death of a spouse and divorce are risk factors for suicide in both genders, but the effect is somewhat mitigated for females. In the Western world, females are more likely to maintain social and familial connections that they can turn to for support after losing their spouse. Another factor closely tied to gender roles is employment status. Males' vulnerability may be heightened during times of unemployment because of societal expectations that males should provide for themselves and their families." End quote. All right, let's look at another topic that was brought up in the documentary. Another point that they make is that men suffer higher workplace fatalities and work in higher risk professions than women and that this fact is simply ignored because to feminists, men dying at their jobs doesn't mean anything. It's not hard to see why there would be some anger over this, if you really thought that that's what women thought about you and about your gender overall, then you know you could uh, generate some ire towards uh, feminists because of that. Now while many feminists talk about the pay gap, which is based on very controversial studies and statistics, no one really discusses this workplace death gap. Yet I did not see anyone in my research refuting the pretty common sense validity of the fact that men work in higher risk professions than women and therefore die more often on the job. Because of the higher physical risk and exertion such jobs require, they tend to be dominated by men. Bureau of Labor Statistics show that from 2011 to 2015, men accounted for 92.5% of all workplace deaths. And by the way, every statistic that I will talk about or mention in this podcast was something that I found on my own research, not, I'm not quoting from any of the statistics given in the Red Pill documentary. According to a Forbes article which cited on-the-job fatalities from 2010, the most dangerous professions in America, worst first, are 1. Fishers and related fishing workers, because of extreme weather, heavy equipment, and drowning. Two, logging workers because of falling trees, cutting equipment, and difficult terrain. Three, aircraft pilots and flight engineers because of testing equipment, emergency response, and crashes. Four, refuse and recyclable material collectors because of heavy equipment, traffic, and hazardous materials. Five, roofers because of heat heights and summer heat. Six, structural iron and steel workers because of heights, heavy materials, and welding. Seven, farmers, ranchers, and other agricultural managers because of heavy machinery. Eight, drivers slash sales workers and truck drivers because of traffic and fatigue. Nine, electrical power line installers and repairers because of heights and electricity, and finally 10, taxi drivers and chauffeurs because of violence, fatigue, and roadway dangers. Now, in my lifetime, I have personally met women who work in every one of those professions. <laughs> I mean, I'm just going to say right now, we did a lot of that kind of work on the RPF when I was in the C organization, and no one ever stopped a project or changed personnel because of gender differences. 
women are fully capable of getting trained for and doing any of these jobs. It's hard to get accurate numbers on how many women are in each of these professions, at least when I looked. The breakdowns are different. For example, when I was trying to find women doing fishery and related work, I found it combined with forestry occupations. But with the second most dangerous profession, logging, for example, out of 68,000 workers, 99.1% of them are men. For aircraft pilots and flight engineers, out of 141,000 workers, 94.8% are men. And for garbage workers, out of 101,000 of them, 91.4% are men. Now, a lot of assumptions could be made about this, but let me just give you this. Each of these high-risk and high-paying professions requires skill and training and physical stamina. When I heard back in my days in Santa Barbara when I was a young man how much garbage collectors make, I immediately called up to apply. I found out there was a waiting list over a year long. It's not a matter of sexual discrimination so much as it is numerous other factors that keep women out of these professions at the same rate as men. Physical hardship and risk being the main one, and the amount of time and effort required to do the job being another. Now, I'm not implying that women are lazy or something, that's not my point. I don't mean women can't do the work or that they can't invest the time, but how many of them want to? Imagine the consequences on our air travel, food, and garbage situations if we tried to enforce a 50-50 quota system in these professions. Do any of you honestly believe that there are just as many women lining up to be roofers, iron workers, or ranchers as there are men? When you drill down into the details of this, it becomes clear that the more dangerous and physically challenging jobs are dominated by men for a reason. Women just don't want to do those jobs in the same numbers. Now, the pay gap issue is controversial, and I know I'm going to upset some people just bringing it up, but hear me out. You can find studies and statistics to back up almost any position on the spectrum, for there being no wage gap to there being a gigantic one. Various figures have been thrown out over the years depending on who you ask and when. In looking into this, I found claims that the same job being done by people of the same skill set and work experience have discrepancies reported from 5.4 to 41% of a wage gap difference. Of course, if it were true that women were specifically being discriminated against only because they have a vagina, then why would any business paying attention to its bottom line ever hire a man? If any woman of equal skill, education, and ability could be paid substantially less than any man, it would not make any sense for a business to ever hire a man. Now when this question is asked seriously, and it did come up in the documentary, you get the real factors behind pay gaps between the genders. Now I'm going to quote someone, this is not from the documentary, this was a self-proclaimed intersectional feminist who laid it out pretty clearly, at least in terms of the corporate world. Quote, the gender pay ga gap doesn't, for the most part, come from corporations making different salary offers to men or to women, although that does happen. It comes from men being more likely to apply for the job, even if they don't have all of the qualifications. It comes from women being much more likely to accept the first offer instead of negotiating. It comes from the women who do choose to negotiate, often caring more about benefits than pay. It comes from women not being promoted or offered raises at the same levels as men. It comes from women working fewer hours over the course of their careers than men because they're expected to do so in taking care of their families and raising children. It comes from fields that are dominated by women being, on average, paid much less than fields dominated by men. She goes on to say, the firm I work for has, for the most part, great policies and a good work environment for women. Almost half our office is women, which is very unusual for the field we're in. But our bonus and promotion systems are still based on how quote-unquote billable employees are, i.e. how many hours they put in per week that can be billed to clients 
with no weekly cap on hours, which means that employees who choose to make time for their families by only working 40 hours a week are essentially choosing to make less money and advance more slowly than those who are able and willing to work 50 to 60 hours a week. Since women face much more pressure, both from our society slash culture and from their families, to reserve time and energy for emotional labor, quote unquote, for their families, this means that over the long run, men will tend to make more money at my firm than women, end quote. Now, of course, this is just one anecdotal example, and other anecdotes can be found to support any view you care to have. I believe that the above, though, that I just read to you is a fairly average and good example of the broader corporate picture. The jobs are out there. Women can get them if they're willing to do the same volume of work and make the same sacrifices as men do. And for any of you out there right now who are saying to yourselves, but our culture puts unfair demands on women to raise children and take care of the home and that sort of thing, let's just reverse that viewpoint for a second. Do you automatically assign to all men a callous disregard for their wives and children? Do you think men enjoy working 60 to 70 hours a week climbing the corporate ladder so they can provide for their families? If so, I think you might have some gender bias of your own interfering with your common sense. Men don't enjoy making the sacrifices they have to make to survive and succeed in the corporate world any more than women do. And it's not just the MRAs who think that those sacrifices are more expected of men than women, and that for many, men are doing so out of a sense of duty and loyalty to their families. Just think about that a bit before coming to any unwarranted conclusions that men have it easier than women in the corporate world. It's a sacrifice no matter who's making it, and those men are not seeing their children, and they're not seeing their wives, and most of the time, I would feel fairly secure in saying those men love their children and love their wives just as much as their wives love them. So they don't enjoy having to make the sacrifices that they make. That part is never really talked about too much in feminist circles. All right, let's go to the next topic. This is called male disposability. And I, again, I found this interesting, uh, if for no other reason than it just got me thinking. The MRAs make a broad and interesting point about the disposability of males as a whole. The idea is that in any dangerous situation, whether it's combat or a natural disaster or an accident, it's always the women and children who go first. While some more radical feminists may decry this tradition, for the most part, it's built into the very foundations of our Western society. You can imagine what would happen to any man who tried to elbow his way to the front of the line ahead of women and or their children in a sinking boat or getting out of a burning building. This tendency in our society has actually been tested for by MIT with their, quote, moral machine, quote, survey, which presents different scenarios of a driverless car killing one group or another, and the person taking the test has to decide which is going to die. According to the results, more people would choose to have the car run over a man than a woman, and would rather that they run over older people rather than children. This speaks to an implicit bias, not a conscious one or a thinking one. Implicit means you're not aware of it. And it's an, and it's an implicit bias that adult males are more disposable and less valued than females. We see this all the time in media stories, choosing which kidnapping or missing persons reports to highlight and which victims should gain our sympathy. I think most people would admit that given a choice and all things being equal, a missing female would garner more sympathy and support than a missing male. Most people I know would assume the guy is out gallivanting about or laid up somewhere or just took off for no special reason while they wouldn't make such assumptions about the missing female. When it comes to military conscription or the draft, MRAs point out that all men are the ones who have to sign up for selective service and will be the ones who go to prison, not be eligible for student loans or federal job training, and get huge fines if they don't sign up. Under current law, no woman would be forced to sign up or go into the military for any reason. 
It's more than just a matter of one person's perspective, though, when you have agreed upon societal norms that men need to die first. And in Western culture, there is no question that those biases exist. Maybe it even goes back to biology, right? There are more sperm than there are eggs. Males are more abundant. Males are more easily reproduced. But even so, even if it's biological, it's still a disadvantage that your average male would say, hey, how come I'm the one who dies just because I have a penis? It's a valid question and one worth looking at. All right, domestic violence happens every day and it's always ugly. Whether men are beating up on women, women are beating up on men, or either of them are beating up on their kids, there's no question we human beings have tempers and they flare up and sometimes people not only get hurt, but they die. The controversy isn't whether this is a real problem or whether spouses sometimes physically take out their frustrations on each other. It's how much of a problem this is for women versus men. The position of the MRAs is that yes, women are beaten and abused and sometimes killed by their partners, and this is wholly unacceptable behavior. But that it's wholly ignored in every discussion, legislation, and social justice program to address this issue when the men are the ones who are being assaulted. Statistics provided by the National Domestic Violence Hotline show that one in four women and one in seven men aged 18 and older in the U.S. have been the victims of severe physical violence by an intimate partner. That doesn't mean getting slapped or pushed around. That means severe physical violence. One in three women and one in ten men have experienced rape, physical violence, and or stalking by a partner to the point that it impacted their ability to function in life. That's 10% of men. That's not an insignificant figure when you're talking about a population in the United States of over 300 million people. Nearly half of all women and men in the U.S. have experienced psychological aggression by an intimate partner in their lifetime, with the percentages of this being nearly equal between men and women. So, it's not a matter of men not being abused physically and psychologically by their intimate partners. While percentages are greater for women, they are not so significantly different as to justify ignoring the experience of men or just chalking it up to the fact that they should shut up and take it. Yet if you look at this subject from the point of view of media attention and legislation, you find that women receive the bulk of sympathy, support, and treatment. In the U.S., there are 2,000 domestic violence shelters, but only one of them offers support and treatment for men. I don't think I really have to belabor this point. If you're a battered male, you will look in vain for sympathy, understanding, or government-sponsored treatments in the U.S. That is just a fact. And yet, whenever this topic is brought up, radical feminists start shouting about how this is just a backlash against the domestic violence faced by women. It's the zero-sum fallacy all over again, where there's this idea that if you support battered men and care for their concerns, you're somehow lessening the issue against women. That is so illogical. It's irrational thinking at an extreme, and it denies not only battered and abused men the treatment and support they need, but it also opens the door to more violence against children in such a situation. I don't think anyone could honestly assert that women who beat up on their husbands will universally not touch their children too. So this is a matter that requires attention. It is not to say that men are as abused as women because they are not. But how does it make sense to say, well, women are more abused than men and therefore men should be ignored? That doesn't make sense. And that's really the totality of my point on that. All right, another point that we will discuss here briefly is the social tolerance of misandry now being built into the language itself. Now, I've discussed the effects of language on our thinking many times, and it's a subject that's kind of near and dear to my heart, which is why I'm bringing it up, even though, strictly speaking, this is not really the biggest issue and shouldn't be amongst MRAs or feminists. Uh, however, it does affect behavior. If you control the language of a culture, you control how it thinks and acts. 
Now, fortunately, there's no one entity that has such powerful control, but the feminist movement has introduced words specific to men, some of them bordering on misandry, such as mansplaining, manspreading, etc. Okay, so I went and looked into this, and I found an article in The Guardian by a woman named Liz Cookman from February 2015, which says, quote, men, if they're not mansplaining things to women, they're manslamming us in the street, manspreading on the tube, or manterrupting us during work meetings. Even as a hairy, sensible shoe-wearing man-hater, otherwise known as a feminist, the rise and rise of the man-shaming portmanteau has left me feeling a little uncomfortable. First, there was mansplaining, which, was, which has just been declared 2014's Aussie Word of the Year by Macquarie Dictionary of Australian English. It refers to the very real tendency of some men to explain things to women, whether they need them explaining or not, because of an ingrained assumption that they're too ignorant, their pretty little heads too full of boys and makeup, no doubt, to understand. The term is thought to have first been coined by feminist commentators in 2008 following the publication of Rebecca Solnit's scathing essay, Men Explain Things to Me. The piece recounted the painful tale of the time an overconfident and clueless man at a party explained her own book to her, an experience that many women can sympathize with to some degree. One of the problems with simplistic terms like this, however, is that their ease of use and humor risk diluting any message. They become an easy-to-mouth solution for a more complicated problem, and this one quickly took on more pejorative meanings. It became a go-to phrase for mumbled or garbled explanations, and the trump card in arguments, but this sort of overuse just desensitizes us to the real issue, which is that yes, some men really do talk down to women." End quote. And I could not agree more. Uh, it's not a matter of uh, me thinking that mansplaining is not a thing. I know it's a thing. Oh God, I've done it enough times. And I try, after being made aware of this sort of thing, to catch myself at it and not do it. Of course, I also mansplain to men too, because that's just my stupid way. Uh, but we don't talk about that, we just talk about it in regards to women. Now, really, in the end, there's no stopping people from coining new words, and there's no stopping societies from making them go viral, so to speak. But I think we should recognize that language shapes attitudes, and attitudes shape action. There's been no shortage of misogynistic language, too. The river flows both, both ways, goes both directions, and then my point is that two wrongs don't make a right. Now, there are other issues that they bring up in the documentary, and we're not going to go into those in as much detail just because I don't want to spend any more time belaboring these points. But I think, again, that these are valid points of discussion, and these include child custody and unfair family court biases. And this is a huge topic, and probably, from what I've seen and read, the one that brings more men into the MRA side of thinking than any other instance, because you have situations in courts where men, simply because they're men, do not get custodial rights of their children, get unfair um, visitation rights, uh, and other injustices that occur uh, on this line. It gets pretty bad, and some of the individual stories are truly heartbreaking, and I am absolutely positive that there are just as many heartbreaking stories on the other side of the gender equation, too. Uh, but they don't get talked about, and this is the reason why this is being brought up. There's also a matter of criminal sentencing, where men are sentenced to longer terms and more harsh terms than women who have committed the exact same crime. Again, there is no question about this. It is easily verifiable. It's easily seen to be a fact, and yet it's just sort of glossed over. Uh, then there is educational inequality. Now, I didn't do a deep dive into this, so I'm not totally sure what all the issues are surrounding this other than a statistic that was presented about how there are more men dropping out of higher education and, and less men graduating from higher education uh, than there are women. 
I could not even begin to explain the reasons for that exactly, but it's something that men have been pointing out in the MRA side of things. And then finally, there is the men's lack of reproductive rights. There are other issues too, but I'm just uh, nailing down these because I thought these were the ones that at least had some uh, valid point of discussion. And on this point of reproductive rights, what we're talking about here is an extremely complicated issue that does not have any easy solution. It is a rough one. And that is, what rights does a man have to, uh, one, reproduction, because men have condoms or uh, get a vasectomy. That's it. That's, that's your birth control for guys. And, you know, whatever. But more importantly, what rights do men have one, if they have impregnated a woman to that child or to that you know, woman carrying that child to term and the rights, of course, that they have after the baby is born? Uh, there's undeniably uh, bias against men on this point. I do understand the biology argument, and I'm not saying it's invalid. Women are the ones who have to carry a baby. They are the ones their bodies create, you know, develop it. They don't necessarily, I wouldn't say create it, but they develop it. And so therefore, of course, of course, women should have the brunt of, or the majority of decision-making when it comes to whether they're going to have the child and, um, yeah, you know, and what they're going to, and what's going to happen uh, with that. But to say that men have no rights in that regard, I can't quite get behind that argument. I don't think that the discussion stops with what the woman wants. I think that if a man's, uh, the, the father's point of view is not included in that discussion, then it is an incomplete discussion and uh, something, again, that is worthy of talking about. But again, very complicated because you have so many different people with so many different levels of responsibility, different levels of participation, different levels of income, different levels of potential to contribute to the child's life. So it really, you know, it, it's not, it's, it's difficult to discuss a topic like that on a broad basis. And I would never support legislation that said that a man would be able to prevent a woman from either carrying a child to term or forcing a woman to carry a child to term that the woman didn't want. I would never, ever support such legislation. Uh, but I would support the idea, not legislation, but just the common sense idea and societal value that both parents should be involved in any discussion having to do with what's going to happen with that unborn baby. All right, so these are all valid points, and there is a lot of hype and a lot of nonsense in the MRA side about these points. Not all the people in the MRAs, including uh, Elam, have rational, sensible things to say about this. However, they do bring these topics up for discussion, and the topics themselves are not biased topics. They are simply factual occurrences in our society that are, I think are worth talking about. Uh, now, our problem is that these lunatics get involved and then no one can talk rationally about any of it. And that's, you know, I'll, here I'll give you now uh, a quote from Elam's daughter uh, because this guy, Paul Elam, has said things that are extremely insane. And I'll go over a couple of those with you as we move forward here. Uh, but she's, his daughter claims, quote, he does a lot of stuff just to get a rise out of the public. He said there's no such thing as bad press. He knew in order to get something out in the spotlight, especially something as niche as men's rights, you have to overblow it, end quote. Now, I'm going to agree with that basic premise without agreeing with the way that Elam has gone around doing this. Uh, I think, and we see this all the time, that in order to get any kind of attention at all, you have to become the worst possible example of a thing. Um, I don't agree with that idea. I don't like that it's that way. I don't think it's proper or civilized that it be that way. But let's face it, it's that way. Now, it was interesting. While I was looking at some of Elam's uh, earliest videos on YouTube, I went back on his channel to his very first videos and watched the first of them because I was curious how he hit the scene back in 2009. And in doing so, I found a quote from uh, one of the commenters to one of his videos uh, that I thought was interesting. This was uh, from a YouTuber uh, or somebody on YouTube named Byena, B-Y-E-N-I-A, uh, Byena, who said, um, gave a rather even-handed look at the problem of using exaggerated hyperbole to make a point. And she said, quote, 
I, I'm assuming it's her, it might be a guy. Quote, I do think you overinflate men's innocence, similar to how feminists like to overinflate women's innocence. While people like to think exaggerations are useful to even the score, it really just makes it look like both ends of the scale tip too far off base. Would be nice if we could assess the situation without so many distortions and biases, but I suppose that's impossible since we each live behind our own eyes. Subjective, emotional, irrational beings striving to be reasonable, or at least create the semblance of such. Lots and lots of people are unhappy, both men and women, and material gain doesn't alleviate that despite some hoping it will. So it seems obvious that we're living lives out of balance and that something seriously needs to give. Feminism has gone too far and is creating more problems than it remedies these days. That's a given. But it really disturbs me when I read some of what you've put out there like you're just trying to scare the shit out of women. Acquit all men in rape cases involving women, never mind all the other crimes men are falsely accused of and convicted for, like drug possession and homicides. When you zone in on what will scare and psychically hurt women most, you not only offend feminists and draw attention to your movement and organization, you detract from its value in many of our eyes." End quote. So yes, there is that side effect, I guess you could say, or backlash that occurs when you go to an extreme firebrand point of view. Now, one of my main complaints about the Red Pill documentary is that the documentarian does not confront Paul Elam on some of the most disgusting and controversial and horrible things that he has said and written. Uh, he comes across in the documentary as a very rational actor who's well thought, well spoken, and uh, you know, why would you have a problem with him? Uh, okay, well, the guy has a rocky and dark past, uh, which does not paint him in a flattering light. According to a 2015 BuzzFeed investigation where they spoke directly with his ex-wife and his estranged daughter. Now, I am not at all interested in ad hominem. And, um, you know, the reason why ad hominem is a logical fallacy is because any person, even a person of low character or a complete criminal, can still make a logical and rational point or tell the truth about something. However, <laughs> there certainly is cause to be concerned if someone is outed as having a motivation to lie, and hypocrisy does say something about a person's character and honesty. So here are a couple of quotes from this guy, Paul Elam, that I found very disturbing and which should have been addressed in the documentary and were not. In one post, Elam wrote that, quote, all the, all the politically correct demands to get huffy and point out how nothing justifies or excuses rape won't change the fact that there are a lot of women who get pummeled and pumped because they are stupid and often arrogant enough to walk through life with the equivalent of a I'm a stupid conniving bitch, please rape me neon sign glowing above their empty little narcissistic heads. Okay, this guy wrote that, and that is absolutely disgusting. Now, I mentioned hypocrisy. The hypocrisy comes in the way that he acted with his own estranged daughter, and how if he's representing and leading a movement about men fighting for their custodial rights and wanting to be part of their children's lives, that you would imagine he himself would jump at the chance to have a relationship with his daughter and his own grandkids. He had that when she, his estranged daughter, reached out to him and then he blew it within a few years and is now completely out of touch with them. So it's a little bit weird that this guy has the opportunity to have exactly what he's saying men can't have in this society because of feminism or the matriarchy or something, and yet he himself is the one who's blown that. And that, of course, is another example of the personal responsibility versus the systemic issue. You can have both things existing at the same time. So I don't in any way condone, endorse, or think that any of the ridiculously harsh, abusive, and outright uh, violence-promoting language that is used by some in the 
MRA or in the men's rights movement is at all justified. And anyone who knows me and has watched my channel for any length of time knows that I never endorse violence of any kind. So that incendiary and harsh and vitriolic language is really, really destructive to anyone's cause on all sides of or any side of any spectrum you care to look at. So that all being said, I am not a supporter of MRAs as such. I am a supporter of rationality and I am a supporter of justice and equal, true equality between the sexes or genders or whatever word you want to use. Now, that being said, I'm going to conclude with this. The bottom line with MRAs is this. Individuals have been harmed by various systems in our society which don't care about them as individuals and operate arbitrarily on rules or guidelines which create injustice. Whether in divorce court or a custody battle, a false legal allegation that destroys a man's reputation and his bank account, or literally being physically beaten and then being arrested for no other reason than you're a man and your assaulter was a woman. These instances of injustice create a deep and lasting anger and feeling of victimization. What is someone supposed to do in such a situation? Lie down and take it? Maybe they're supposed to man up and just silently deal with those injustices because they're part of a patriarchy which systemically victimizes women. So they have no rights of their own? In certain circles, that is exactly what these men are told, and they justifiably react very negatively to that. So they find other men who have experienced similar injustices, and they then talk amongst themselves and try to find a causative agent, a reason why their life took a major turn for the worse. These men weren't victimizing their partners, and some of them even considered themselves feminists before their unfortunate circumstances proved to them that men could be victimized just as much as women. Like my experience in Scientology, when you find out the darker and more abusive side of any group, you have a natural desire to fight back against it, to let other people know the dangers that exist in these systems so they won't be victims too. Is that such a bad thing to do? No, of course it's not. Victims of any gender, color, race, or creed do not deserve what they get. That's the reason we use the word victim. For men, it's harder to own up to having been a victim. All the cultural norms in modern society say that the ideal man is a hardened warrior, tough and adversarial, able to take a beating and fight right back and never give up, never surrender. Real life is quite a bit different from that stereotype. In the same way that the old school stereotype of the ideal wife, loving and doting and who always had dinner ready on time and the children under control, was itself a ridiculous stereotype that no women could ever live up to. At least within my own lifetime, I feel confident in saying that all the subconscious biases installed in us from before we could even speak make us resist the idea that men are victims. It's uncomfortable. It rubs us the wrong way. But the truth is that abusers and abuses are equal opportunity and exist in every system and every group people have ever invented. If we're going to listen to women and children when they are victimized, we need to listen to men too. That is what true equal rights are all about. What we seem to lack at both ends of the radical sexism spectrum is empathy and understanding for the very real problems that both genders face in, the in their day-to-day -day life. If I were going to try to offer a solution to all this, I would propose some kind of educational, immersive experience for males and females. A virtual reality world, perhaps, where men would be made to experience the everyday world of a woman, and women would likewise be made to walk in a man's shoes for a period of time. I think repeated trips offering a variety of experiences in everyday life would be quite eye-opening for each. From just driving somewhere and going shopping at a mall, to answering questions in a job interview, to going out to the beach or a park, to going online on social media, to working at various kinds of jobs. And of course, as soon as I thought of it, I googled this idea only to find it's already being done. I think if you search for 
virtual reality gender simulator, yourself, you'll see what I'm talking about. I think this is a good idea and could be exactly the kind of compassion machine we've been looking for. There's still a long way to go before we get fully immersive scenarios like the ones I imagined earlier, but the good news is we are on our way to using this VR technology for more than just gaming. To me, this is much more important to our future, especially as the issues of sex, gender, and identity are only going to continue to become more complicated. So that's my final take on this whole thing. I would not necessarily recommend watching the Red Pill documentary all on its own as an, a representative way of, or as a way of getting a representation of what MRAs are all about because that is not what that documentary really is. It has been panned by feminists as something to not watch and has even been stopped from being shown. And as I mentioned earlier in this podcast, I think that's just as wrong too and speaks to me of um, bad arguments that feminists have against these points. And so, you know, I, uh, I think that if you are going to dive deep into this subject, there's a wealth of material and information to look at. I have only scratched the surface of a lot of it in this podcast, uh, but I think I've touched on the points that are at least most important to me and the ones I wanted to bring up for discussion. I hope that no one after watching all of this thinks I'm a misogynist or that I hate women or any such thing because the, the exact opposite is true and anyone who knows me knows that that's not the case. All right, thank you very much for coming around and watching. Feel free to leave any comments, uh, good, bad, or sideways, in the comment section on YouTube or at sensiblyspeaking.com. I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.